0: Organ donation saves lives and all of us are encouraged to think about donating our organs and signing our donor card. This process is relatively straightforward, but in the situation where a patient who is requesting medical assistance in dying referred to as MAID or withdrawal of life-sustaining measures, which is called WLSM, the conversation about organ donation become entangled in ethical questions and concerns. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. We've just published an article providing guidance for policy on deceased organ and tissue donation after patients undergo MAID or withdrawal of life-sustaining measures and for other conscious and competent donors. This guidance was developed on behalf of the Canadian Blood Services in collaboration with the Canadian Critical Care Society, the Canadian Society of Transplantation, and the Canadian Association of Critical Care Nurses. To help us understand what this guidance for policy entails, I've reached Dr. James Downer and Dr. Jennifer Hancock. Dr. James Downer is head of the Division of Palliative Care at the University of Ottawa and it is a critical care physician at the Ottawa Hospital. He is one of the authors of this guidance for policy. Dr. Jennifer Hancock is an intensive care physician in Halifax and is involved with Nova Scotia's organ donation organization, Legacy of Life. She has also acted as the physician handling the organ donation for a patient who underwent MAID and will share some of her insights from having gone through the process outlined in this guidance document. This patient was one of the patient participants who contributed to the development of this document. Welcome to both of you.
1: Hi, Dr. Gelfall.
0: Thank you for having us. Well, thanks for joining me today. Can you tell us from your point of view why this document is important at this time?
1: So in Canada, organ donation is fairly common. We do roughly 2,000 organ donations every year from donors who are deceased. There are two uh, types of deceased organ donation, one where the donor has suffered brain death or neurological death, and then another type where patients can donate their organs after uh, circulatory deaths or after their heart stops. The donation after circulatory death is less common in Canada and is more of a recent uh, phenomenon. And we've had guidelines around that in Canada for now more than 10 years. Uh, Those guidelines were developed uh, during a time and thinking of a scenario where somebody would be an unconscious person dependent on life support, And somebody was making a decision, uh, a family member was making a decision on their behalf that they would want to donate their organs after life support would be withdrawn, assuming that was consistent with their wishes. Now, more recently, there have been a couple of developments that have made us uh, think that newer guidelines might be needed for this scenario. One of them obviously being the legalization of medical aid in dying uh, just a couple of years ago here in Canada, but also an increasingly recognized practice of conscious and competent patients uh, on life support asking that their life support be withdrawn and also asking for the right to donate their organs to save someone else. Um, so we thought it would be very important to try to develop new guidelines uh, to try to help navigate some of the ethical issues that come up when you have a conscious, competent person who is making both a request for, for something that will effectively result in, in their death very soon, but also to, to donate their own organs.
0: So what is the scope of this guidance? It's, it's a, a long, thorough document. Who did you write it for?
1: So it is actually intended as guidance for policy. So it could be used to help decision makers who are developing local policies for their own institutions. It could also be directed at organ donation organizations as well. Uh, and can some of the guidelines, some of the recommendations are actually specific clinical recommendations uh, for people at the bedside. So the guidance document is Directed at uh, a number of different people.
0: So, before we jump into the recommendations, could you give us a brief overview of the rigorous process that you followed to develop them?
1: Right. So shortly after the legalization of medical aid in dying, uh, Canadian Blood Services and different organ donation organizations across the country started to receive a number of requests from competent and conscious patients uh, to donate their own organs. And so uh, people started talking to Canadian Blood Services to try to see if they could get some guidance around this. So in response to that, uh, Canadian Blood Services convened a panel of different experts from different fields, uh, organ donation, ethics, law, uh, intensive care, end-of-life care, and uh, neurology because... As many of these cases involve people with advanced neurological illness. Um, the group uh, then commissioned a poll from Ipsos Read to start a canvas uh, public opinion around these important issues, uh, also engaging with different members of the panel and other experts to collect existing guidelines and evidence, published evidence about practice and experience from parts of the world that had already legalized uh, medical aid in dying to see what their experience was with organ donation around in this area. Uh, this culminated in a guidance development meeting that took place in two thousand and seventeen, uh, and that involved the attendance of uh, of i think almost forty people representing different aspects of organ donation practices uh, all, all throughout the spectrum. A number of presentations from people with uh, important perspectives we uh, actually had experts come from uh, other countries to talk about their experience um, as well and then we during this two day workshop broke off into small groups and one by one started to take on some of the, the challenging ethical and clinical questions that came up as we started to think through uh, issues that would arise uh, when, when doing organ donation in the context of medical aid in dying or withdrawal of life-sustaining measures. Ultimately, that resulted in the development of a guidance document that uh, has taken a little while to polish and get finalized, and that's what you see in front of you today.
0: Let's get into the recommendations. The first one pertains to deceased organ donation in conscious and competent patients. Can you first tell us who these patients are and then tell us about the recommendation?
1: Right. So in most cases... Uh, people who are requesting medical aid in dying are not going to be eligible to donate their organs, so uh, the large majority of people who are eligible for medical aid in dying and who request it um, have advanced cancer and usually those individuals are not able to to donate organs, uh, can sometimes donate tissue. Um, The other uh, population that commonly uh, gets involved in medical aid in dying are neurodegenerative diseases, so that would be people with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or uh, ALS, Um, and those individuals Individuals often are younger people with fewer medical, uh, other medical problems, and they may be eligible to donate their organs. So very often it would be those individuals, but they would be at the time that they're considering organ donation would also be competent not only to request medical aid in dying or withdrawal of life-sustaining measures, but also capable of, of, uh, in some cases, advocating for themselves, but certainly requesting for themselves the right to donate their organs.
0: Now, one of the things the guidance document talks about a lot is the importance about separating the conversation about medical assistance in dying or withdrawal of life-saving measures from the decision to donate organs. Can you tell us why this is important and what you mean by
1: that? Yeah, so I I think that we're talking about uh, practices that are, uh, for some people, still quite controversial. Uh, So donation after cardiac death or circulatory death in Canada um, has been accepted and fairly widely practiced now for a little over a decade. I think that's less controversial than it used to be. Uh, The practice of withdrawal of life-sustaining measures is probably not controversial uh, for most people anymore in in many parts of the world, but still in others it is. Uh, The practice of medical aid in dying is now legal, but still many people people in the medical community and outside the medical community are uncomfortable with the idea of medical aid in dying. Um, and uh, an organ donation, of course, is pretty widely accepted by the population, but of course, there are still people who have opposition to it. Um, the The big issue then that arises, though, if you say that if, if, you're, if you're in a jurisdiction where organ donation after circulatory death and medical aid in dying and withdrawal of life-standing measures are all legal, uh, are there additional issues that arise when you combine them? And the one that people we're most concerned about is is the possibility that one decision might influence the other. So, for example, somebody who is not initially considering medical aid in dying, but wants to uh, proceed towards a natural death uh, and receive good palliative care, and then learns that they might be eligible to donate their organs if they were to receive medical aid in dying, could that drive them to then request uh, medical aid in dying solely for the purpose of being able to donate their organs rather than for the intended purpose uh, for which we've legalized medical aid in dying? The big concern here is that, yeah, one decision is going to drive the other. And so the, the best way to manage that would be to say that um, we don't get into discussions or we will not assess eligibility for organ donation um, until the decision for end-of-life decision, whatever it is, withdrawal of life-sustaining measures or medical aid in dying, is taken. Only after people have expressed an interest in that and are found to be eligible should we then proceed to discuss uh, whether this person might be eligible to donate their organs. And, and we should not be initiating any sort of investigations for, for a, um, a suitability to donate organs until that decision is taken.
0: Which brings up the issue of consent. What is important for physicians to keep in mind regarding consent?
1: So when you're dealing with an individual who is conscious and competent, they should be able to provide an informed consent, not only for medical aid in dying or withdrawal of life-sustaining measures, but also for organ donation. Um, so. This is a standard part of assessing anybody for uh, eligibility to have life-sustaining measures withdrawn or for medical aid in dying, and those rules won't change. It's just that we should make sure that uh, the discussions of any discussion of organ donation does not take place out of order, so that those those considerations will influence the decision to proceed with medical aid in dying or not.
0: Now we know that we have a shortage of organs donated in Canada. So there is the issue of conflict of interest or perceived conflict of interest where when the same healthcare provider who's discussing made or withdrawal of life saving measures is also discussing organ donation with a patient. You have a few recommendations that you put in place to help protect patients. Can you tell us a little bit more about these?
1: So in order to protect patients, it's very important to separate the decision not only in time, right, making sure that the uh, end of life decision is made first before any decisions about organ donation, but also to separate the decision in terms of the team. Uh, This is already done for withdrawal of life support. So the person managing the the patient when life sustaining measures are withdrawn should not be the same person who is uh, managing the organ donation procedure that follows afterwards. We have to observe important clinical principles of making sure that patients are comfortable and uh, that uh, any organ donation consideration doesn't take precedence over a patient care uh, decision for the donor. Um, when this comes to organ donation after medical aid and dying, we have to make sure that those two uh, decisions and conversations are actually separated by, by, by people. So the person discussing uh, MAID, MAID eligibility and how MAID works should not be somebody from the organ donation team um, and that the organ donation team only gets involved uh, after the MAID issues have been addressed.
0: Now, the document includes recommendations about other things, for example, donor testing, determination of death. I'd like to get your uh, for you to outline a little bit the recommendations in these areas. Let's start first with with donor testing. What is the recommendation around that?
1: So this is very important, right? Because it, when this is one of the reasons why we needed these newer guidelines, because the previous guidelines around donation after circulatory death um, were designed around the scenario of somebody who was in the intensive care unit on life-sustaining measures, likely not competent and, and often not conscious. Um, usually, these individuals have a lot of invasive uh, life-sustaining treatments ongoing, including uh, things that can monitor blood pressure, you can draw blood testing Easily, you can measure lung function, you can measure kidney function um, you can assess all of the the uh the individual's organ function to a very very you know substantial degree. Now replace that scenario with somebody else who uh is conscious and competent but not uh, necessarily in an i c u not necessarily on invasive life support uh, if it's somebody who's for example living at home, uh, our ability to assess their lungs is obviously. Not as great, and so uh, bringing somebody in when they have, for example, a grievous and irremediable medical condition, which is what would make them eligible for made medical aid in dying, um, can place a substantial burden on that person to do extensive testing of their heart, their lungs, their liver, and their kidneys. Uh, That can be a lot to ask of somebody who may have a fairly limited time uh, left and is really trying to spend all of their remaining time focusing on on maximizing quality of life. Um, rather than spending time in hospitals uh, having testing done. So thinking about some of the more basic uh, testing that you could do, some of the, the the minimal required testing to assess whether somebody might be a suitable organ donor is important. And then the other thing is uh, deciding the time of death because after when you're doing donation after circulatory death, um, there, you're supposed to wait until the person's heart has stopped or essentially has stopped uh, moving blood forward, that there's no circulation. And normally you have fairly invasive monitoring like an arterial catheter to measure that and confirm that. But people who come in for medical aid in dying usually don't have uh, a catheter inserted and it It can be quite a process to actually have one put in in an awake patient that could be uncomfortable. So using less invasive means of ensuring that there's no circulation going on for five minutes prior to determining that that person has has had a circulatory death is really important and we do mention a number of ways of, of assessing that.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that there might be some situations when organ donation is not appropriate after made or withdrawal of life-saving measures. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about those type of situations?
1: So, if somebody is conscious and competent and able to provide first-person consent for an end-of-life procedure like medical-aided dying or withdrawal of life-sustaining measures and organ donation... Um, and they do appear to be a suitable organ donor, then the guidelines would suggest that they should be allowed to do that. but, of course, if they are not uh, able to provide first-person consent for any of the above, if, for example, um, after having life-sustaining measures withdrawn or a medical-aided dying procedure, sometimes it can take a very long time for that person's heart to stop or for them, their circulation to stop. And if it takes uh, too long for someone's circulation to fully stop, um, they would no longer be eligible to donate their organs because those organs would have been starved of oxygen and blood flow for too long and will have suffered damage as a result. There are sometimes other conditions that the person might have that would make them uh, not an ideal organ donor. So sometimes people dying of metastatic cancer, for example, uh, we usually will not use uh, organs from somebody who has metastatic cancer for fear of transmitting the cancer. And there are other uh, neurological conditions that may may be similar to ALS, um, but have not yet been diagnosed. And there's always the concern that that one of these conditions might be transmissible. And certainly you don't want to, to give a, a neurodegenerative disorder to somebody when you're transplanting an organ for them. So I think these are the main concerns about uh, a potential situation where somebody you know, would not be eligible to donate their organs following a uh, medical aid in dying or withdrawal of life support.
0: Let's move over to conscientious objection. You've mentioned that a few times in our conversation today. What happens in a situation when a physician exercises a conscientious objection to medical aid in dying or to withdrawal of life-saving measures in this situation related to organ donation?
1: Yeah, it's important to note that many healthcare professionals do have a conscientious objection to providing or participating in medical aid in dying, and these guidelines uh, respect that and want to make sure that nobody should feel compelled to participate in a medical aid in dying procedure um, itself. The uh, important thing is to ensure, number one, that the organ donation organizations or, or the facilities where this is taking place uh, make all necessary efforts to, you know, find other staff or help find other people who can help facilitate and respect the patient's wishes uh, without impinging upon the moral conscience of practitioners who might be involved. Um, obviously, there are some issues that may arise after uh, the death of the individual where, you know, somebody involved in organ donation uh, processes, having to transport an organ to the recipient, uh, the surgeon implanting the, the organ into the recipient, um, you know, to what degree does the, could their conscientious objection to medical aid and dying influence their behavior there? Um, some might be concerned that if they participate in an organ donation, even if they had nothing to do with the medical aid in dying, does that in some way validate uh, medical aid in dying, and, and does that make them feel distinctly uncomfortable? So we talked a lot about that as a group in our in our workshop. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of scenarios where, you know, the the, the reason that somebody becomes eligible to donate an organ isn 't something that we would necessarily want to facilitate, for example uh, a car accident or or a trauma or even a murder um, and then somebody may be eligible to donate organs following one of those events uh, and and again it's it 's sort of the same consideration you know I think the the group generally felt that uh, this is not something that should necessarily affect um, somebody 's willingness to implant an organ once that person has donated it after the person has died but it 's important to be respected. Respectful um, of everybody involved in this process, and make sure that, um, you know, given that it's not usually a very time-sensitive procedure, that uh, an organ donation organization and facilities should generally be able to find people who are comfortable with uh, participating in, in the procedure. As a result
0: yeah th- thanks for that. and I think that that will be very reassuring to to a lot of physicians. um now, Jennifer, you were involved with this process um in particular it was with with a patient who was one of the patient participants in in helping to develop this guidance. Um, I wonder if you could share some of the lessons you learned with our listeners today.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. The patient that I had the privilege of working with was an extraordinary woman who was involved in the medical education community and and a born educator. And so she was very instrumental in bringing some awareness to uh, different perspectives that come with organ donation following a MAID procedure. And I think um, these are covered in the guidelines, but if I could broadly categorize them, I would say uh, it comes down into two different areas, an awareness of this process on the patient and family, and an awareness of this process on the healthcare providers and teams. And just going back to the patient and family, that, that will start right from the beginning of your initial assessment and meeting with the patient, carry through the journey, and, and continue right until the time of organ procurement. And Dr. Downer already touched on this a little bit, um, but recognizing the impact of what you may ask the patient uh, to do to participate in the workup is very important. Most of these patients will have advanced neurological disease, and and as already mentioned, the testing can be physically uh, exhausting for them. So tests that can be done in the home should be done in the home, and that's different than what we do with other organ donors. If there is a a trip to the hospital that's required, thinking about what that's going to mean for the patient, so just simple things like where will they park, are you going to need to assist them getting through to the appointments? Do they know their way around the hospital? How can you coordinate the timing of your appointments? Because you really do want to minimize the impact of this um, trip to the hospital, which they probably would not have taken otherwise on them. The other thing that can come with the assessment is the disappointment that they may experience, the patients may experience if they find out that an organ may not be used either because it's not medically suitable or there wasn't able to be a recipient matched. And so you need to be prepared to support your patient through that process and have some process in place to help them deal with that. And I think For me, experiencing this, it it was quite a journey. We started the process more than a year before the MAID procedure was actually done. And so you have a different type of relationship with your potential uh, donor patient than than you would have with other um, potential donors. And it's a very good reminder that they are first a person and secondly a patient. And so there's many times that uh, throughout this interaction that they want to share non-medical things and would like you to learn about them in that that manner. And that's a, a challenge for the healthcare team because it's not a typical type of relationship that you have with your potential uh, donors and their families. So it's something for the team to be very much aware of when they're going through this process. When it comes to the procedure itself, um, the day that a patient chooses to have their MAID procedure is a very big, uh, difficult decision for the patient. And That needs to be balanced with potential um, resources that would be required to establish the MAID procedure and and to to bring together the the operating room team and the transplant surgeon uh, and and all the other resources that would be required. So there needs to be some very clear communication between the MAID provider, the organ donation team, and the transplant team when the process is uh, getting nearer so that we are able to accommodate the patient's request about uh, the MAID procedure. And I think also for the procedure itself, it's very important for healthcare teams to remember most patients would not choose to be in a hospital. They are only here to have their MAID procedure because they believe in the value and importance of organ donation. Um, And so what can you do to help make this a more comforting environment for your patient? Are there things that you can change for the the, um, hospital room? Are there places that you can accommodate their family and maybe um, allow for a celebration that may have happened um, should they had had their MAID procedure in their home. And then I think finally around the procedure, to be aware of what the impact is going to be for their family and friends that are left behind. Because like any other donation after circulatory death, the body is very quickly um, after that five-minute hands-off observation period, taken for organ procurement and so there there may a bit of be a vacuum um, that's left for that family after the body has been um, taken for organ recovery and how do you support those loved ones um, once that process has happened From the healthcare team itself, I think there are some very practical things to think about um, and just simple things like ensuring safety if your team is going to be going into a home to do an assessment or to collect blood work. Um, or, as previously discussed, ensuring that there's a safe mechanism um, for conscientious objectors so that they feel comfortable in removing themselves from the care of the patient, but still maintaining appropriate care for the patient. Um, but probably the biggest impact that I think the donation following made for the healthcare providers is to be aware of the emotional um, impact that you might feel. Uh, we certainly always feel empathy and connection with our donor families, but the relationship with your Um, patient is is very different in this scenario, and the need for debriefing or grief support for all members of the healthcare team that have been involved with this, it's very important to have that uh, set up and established ahead of time. And I think those would be the the main lessons learned um, for us, having gone through the process with the patient. Thank you very much. I think
0: I think uh, listeners will find that very, very helpful. You mentioned a lot about sort of some of the practical considerations. And for readers who are uh, interested, we actually published a case in CMAJ not that long ago about um, actually having organ donation following uh, made at home. Um, and there are, in, in the Netherlands, are starting to do that. So if people are interested, they can uh, go take a look at that. Um, so just wondered if either of you had anything else to add.
1: I can just chime in and say a couple of things. I just wanted to mention that this was a tremendous amount of work to put together these guidelines, and really have to give a lot of credit to uh, all of the the co-authors of the of the paper, also uh, staff at Canadian Blood Services, um, our partners, and uh, with the Canadian Neurological Sciences Federation, Canadian Critical Care Society, Canadian Society of Transplantation, and the Canadian Association of Critical Care Nurses, who all volunteered their time to to make these guidelines guidelines, I I think as helpful as they can be. The other thing I want to just chime in with, really quickly, is to emphasize one key point. These guidelines are not attempting to legalize something or promote uh, anything that was not already legal um, in Canada. The practice of organ donation after medical aid in dying and withdrawal of life-sustaining measures uh, is perfectly legal um, and and has been since medical aid in dying became legal a couple of years ago. The purpose of this document was really to help clinicians navigate some of the ethical issues and make them aware of some of the ethical issues that come up as we're navigating uh, this scenario, which which probably many people hadn't thought of before now. And uh, I think it's important to recognize that, that uh, the intention here is not to promote medical-aided dying or, or even to promote organ donation at all, uh, so much as just try to help people avoid uh, any ethical pitfalls.
0: That's really helpful, James. Well, thank you both very much uh, for joining me today. I think uh, listeners will find this a very helpful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. James Downer, Head of the Division of Palliative Care at the University of Ottawa and Critical Care Physician at the Ottawa Hospital, and with Dr. Jennifer Hancock, Intensive Care Physician in Halifax, Nova Scotia. To read the Guidance for Policy article, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.